Y'all ever known anybody that was obsessed with something? Like it's all they talked about, all they thought about. It's the clothes that they wore. It's the movies that they watched. Yeah. Yeah. Obsessed. Something that is pervasive in somebody's life. Anybody like that? I'm a Redskins fan. And the last time they won the Super Bowl was January of 1992. If anybody laughs, they get in big trouble for that, by the way. But after they won the Super Bowl, I wore a different Redskins shirt to school for four weeks. A different Redskins shirt every day to school for four weeks. So do the math, that's 20. So I had at least 20 Redskin shirts, 20 different ones. And I might could have bought some more because after you win, you, you know, you got stuff going on. But people during that time took notice and they were like, you have worn a different Redskin shirt for like a whole month now. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, obsessed. I was filled up to the brim and overflowing in 1992 with the Redskins. Obsessed, pervasive, it's all I could talk about. Nobody else wanted to talk about it anymore, but I want to talk about it. And I wanted to relive the game, and that was, you know, back we had VCRs then, we didn't have DVR. If I had DVR, I'd probably still have that recording, and I'd still be watching it, because I'm obsessed. and something that's pervasive. People come into my therapy office up here on at Hamlet's Place, and I've got a little Lego Redskins thing, and I've got a Redskins mug that a guy got me, and I've got a Redskins candy dish, and people are like, you must like the Redskins. Well, what gives it away? When we are obsessed with something, when something is pervasive in our lives, I swear that didn't work this morning. We tried it. Sorry. Those lights, we, we tried four times. So Maggie was wrong, Jason. So. <laughs> That's a private joke from this morning. Anyway, obsession, something that's pervasive in your life, something that takes up all of your existence. Have you ever been obsessed with something? That's where we want to start this morning. I want you to think about it. We are in Ezra 8 this morning, but we're going to publicly read the last two verses of Ezra 7 and then work our way through Ezra 8. I kind of like how that... Yeah, y'all like that? As opposed to reading the whole chapter and then going back and going through it again. It doesn't really matter because I'm going to do what I want. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm just throwing that out there for you. Uh, if you would stand and we will publicly read Ezra 7, 27 and 28 to give us kind of a reminder of where we've been and then we'll get into Ezra 8 this morning. As we read God's holy, inerrant, divinely breathed out word, we stand in respect. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let me pray. God, we have...
confidence in your word. We have confidence in your spirit to make this word known and real and powerful in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands and feet and mouths to do what you would have us to do as we respond to your word. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to teach us and instruct us. And we will give you glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you'll remember last week, we came back to Ezra after having been in Esther as an interlude between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. And we said it was almost 60 years between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And then what we saw in Ezra 7 was introduction to this man named Ezra who was a scribe and a, uh, somebody who had set his heart to study, to teach, and to do the law of the Lord. And he has this uh, desire to return to Jerusalem. He's living in Babylonia. And he says, I want to go back to Jerusalem and I want to do these things, do these uh, principles and, and these processes with the people of God in Jerusalem. Now that the temple is rebuilt and they're living religious life there in Jerusalem, Ezra said, I want to do it there. Because that's what's prescribed in this law that he has immersed himself in. So he details how it all came to be and what the king said and how he was carrying a letter back to the king. And the king was just lavish in equipping him and giving him whatever he needed. And then some. Blank check. Here you go. When you get back, if you need more than all this, whatever you need, tell the governors, the satraps and such that they will help you or things won't go well for them or for the people who won't listen to you. And so Ezra uh, concludes chapter 7 by saying, Man, blessed be the Lord who put it into the heart of the king to do this and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. So if you'll notice here at the end of verse 28, he says, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So what he's starting to do there in that sentence is he's kind of going back and filling in the details of what the trip back to Jerusalem looked like. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 8. So we get all these details, and then he starts telling us here at the end of verse 28, chapter 7, okay, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So what we're going to see in chapter 8 is the trip. Well, technically, the gathering to go on the trip, and then there's really zero details about the trip itself. Well, uh, very little, let's say it that way. And then we're going to find them today in Jerusalem, this caravan. But we're going to find out who this caravan is and such. So we're going to start here. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Ezra 8. And this is a whole lot like Ezra 2. If you remember Ezra 2, it was a list of names. It was a long list of names. And we, we uh, by the grace of God, made it through that that morning. Um, but we're going to find ourselves with a shorter list here of the people that went back with Ezra. So, Ezra 8, 1 through 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, 
of the sons of Pahath Moab, Elahonai, the son of Zerhiah, and with him two hundred men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him three hundred men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him fifty men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. It's funny when you see Michael, it's like you want to pronounce it weird because it's like Zebediah, oh no, it's Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him two hundred and eighteen men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. All right. So, Thank you very much. So we don't know if it's right or not, but man, it sounded good, right? So as we're moving into chapter 8, Ezra, like I said, is going back to detail the trip from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So chapter 7 was him saying, we decided to go to Jerusalem and we made it. Now he's saying, let me tell you about the trip. Let me tell you how it came to be. The first thing that he does is he gives details of who went with him. Real people with real names, with real numbers of them. And so here in verses 1 through 14, he gives names of the heads of fathers' houses, which meant they were prominent men from particular family lines. Again, these people could trace their lineage back to Abraham. And before that, if you, go, if you read the Pentateuch. The first two mentioned, Phineas and Ithamar, are descendants of Aaron. So they are of priestly lineage. If you remember... Last week we saw in uh, chapter 7 that Ezra's lineage was traced back through Phineas as well, uh, which went back to Aaron directly. So he was a priest. These, two, these first two mentioned are priests. And then after the first two families that are mentioned, he starts naming other family names and the number of people from that family that went with him. So if there's any math nerds out there that are starting to try to do the math, I did the calculations for you. And this first 14 verses, there's 1,513 men. Mentioned in the passage. Now later in verses 19 and 20, we'll add another 240 or so. So it's a little over 1,700 men. But when you add women and children, the number would probably be closer to about 7,000. I said last week that it was about 2,000, but I was just counting the men and not taking into consideration that there were women and children too. So we've got around 7,000 people. Now, have you ever been in a crowd of 7,000 people or larger? 7,000 people is a lot of people. How many we got here, Will? 36 here this morning. So a lot more than this. And they're going to take a big, long trip together. Now, dads, you ever plan for a trip with your family? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. And moms are like, whatever, I'm the one doing all the work. Fine, whatever. Okay? Planning for a trip's a big deal. I mean, we're going to Cincinnati in a couple months, and I mean, you got to plan for you know, gas, and you got to figure out route, and you got to figure out time, and who can be where, when, and 
Ezra's got to do that for 7,000 people. So I want you to get the scope of what's going on here. This is a big deal. 7,000 people gathering up in this trip that Ezra's given us details for. So then, after seeing that, we're going to read 15 through 20, and we'll see why those who were added to the first group got added. Because I said, remember, some people get added. Let's figure out why. 15 through 20. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there were none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jerob, El-Nathan, Nathan, Nathan, (laughs) what's going on there, Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and El-Nathan, another El-Nathan, that just must have been the name back then, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also, Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Now, what's that mean? Let me, let me break this down for you. This, to me, was one of the most enlightening things I learned this week as I studied this. So they gather up at a place called Ahava, where they camp for three days. Now, they're not just camping, okay? They're getting everything together. It takes a little while to get stuff for 7,000 people. And so Ezra, who's tasked with organizing this traveling party, realizes that someone or someones are missing. He found that there are no sons of Levi. But we already established that there's priests, right? There were sons of Levi, Phineas and Ithamar, and Ezra traced his lineage back to Aaron. But aren't the priests sons of Levi? Yes, they are. And here's where we get into the difference between priests and Levites. Okay, To put it simply, basically, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Let me explain what that means, okay? To be a priest, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to Aaron directly, which is what we did with Ezra last week. But Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. And there are those who are from the tribe of Levi who aren't direct descendants of Aaron. They're cousins, right? But they're not direct descendants. Aaron and his sons were chosen by God on Mount Sinai to be priests... But what about the rest of the Levites? Because we call them the priestly clan. So you got the priests who trace their lineage directly back to Aaron, but who are the Levites? And when did they get their calling? There's some discussion here as to when this actually happened, but we can see a particular time mentioned in Exodus 32. After Moses had come down the mountain and found the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Something happened. I'm going to read that for you. Uh, It's Exodus 32. We're going to read verses 25 through 27, I think. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. 
And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. I'm wrong, it was longer than I thought. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you, Levites, have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his, own, of, of, of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So what happened here? The Levites, the sons of Levi, showing themselves to be on the Lord's side by executing judgment in the form of slaying about 3,000 of their kinfolk for worshiping the calf. And then in verse 29, Moses says, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So after this... They are assigned duties in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the tent that the Israelites carried around in their 40 years of wilderness wandering, and that's where the presence of God would settle. So after this, they were given jobs. They were assigned duties in the tabernacle that they would be responsible for. They would be responsible for setting up the tabernacle, tearing down the tabernacle, and carrying the tabernacle stuff around when they moved from place to place. That's what the Levites did. Okay, They took down the curtains, covered the furniture, carried the ark, such like that, or the furniture. And when, then when they got into the promised land and the tabernacle was set up there, they had duties to do there to keep straight, clean up, that kind of thing. And then when the temple was built, which would have been much later under Solomon's time, they did the non-priestly work of the temple. What I mean by that was they guarded the temple, they cleaned the temple, they did the menial tasks of the temple that the priests didn't do. The priests offered the animals and did the out front stuff and led the worship and stuff. The Levites, they were janitors-ish. But now look at what Moses told them here in verse 29. Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Congratulations, you and all your family after you get to be janitors. Now we laugh at that. God doesn't. We'll talk more about that a little later. So the Levites were more janitors and service workers. So, knowing that, can you imagine why there might not have been any Levites that volunteered to go back to Jerusalem with this group of returnees? Imagine you're a Levite. You're living in Persia. You've been there through a few generations now. And maybe your family's doing okay for itself. You've got some business connections. Maybe you've got your own business. You're doing well. Maybe you've got a home, a family. And you hear that some people are going back to Jerusalem and it crosses your mind to go. And this is what you think. Well... If I go, I will be assigned janitorial duties in the temple. Is that really what I want to do with my life? Do I want to mop up blood from slaughtered animals and shovel guts until I'm 50? Because if you look in Leviticus 8, 24 through 26, 
Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood of the, on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and their right thigh. And that's definitely not the right passage. So forget all that lobe and kidney stuff. <clears throat> Sometimes things like that happen. In Leviticus, it says that the Levites served from the age of 25 until the age of 50. Okay? 25 years. So say you're a 25-year-old Levite living in Persia. They're like, hey, we're going back to Jerusalem. You want to come? You're like, huh. do I? Do I want to leave my life here in Persia, go back to Jerusalem, and scoop poop for a quarter of a century? So Ezra gets to the river and there's no Levites. Makes sense to me. Hmm? Huh? Yeah, they would have been born in Persia. It's the only life they ever knew. Now granted, you're doing these menial tasks in the service of God and His people, but does that help your decision at all? Ezra knew that the work of the temple could not be done without a good supply of Levites. So when he sees that there's none in the party, he sends some men of importance, he says. Some guy, Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam. They're leading men. And for Joy, Arib, and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and he sends them to a guy named Edo, I-D-D-O. It says that Edo was the leading man at the place... Kasafia. And it seems like, from what it says, that there was a group of Levites and or priests who lived in this place. Now, historians say that this was kind of the start of a synagogue mindset. When you get in the New Testament, there's no temple. The old temple was gone. Solomon's temple had been rebuilt uh, under Herod. So it was Herod's temple now in the New Testament. But between those times, of that being gone and then being back in here because this temple that they built gets torn down, all this jazz. They had to worship somehow, so they started what they called a synagogue system, which was what we do, really. It's like a local church building. Every village had a synagogue. So what they think is going on here in Persia is kind of the roots of that, that these guys had started a synagogue-ish type of thing here. That's why these priests were there. They were gathered there. These Levites were there. So Ezra says for these leading men to talk to Ido and have him and his kin come along with them. Ezra says to ask Ido to send us ministers for the house of our God. And it worked. Ido sent some guys. And I love what Ezra attributes it to in verse 18. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Ezra clearly believes and says that God was the one who motivated the Levites to come when they called. We saw this back in the first section of Ezra 2 when it says the people who returned to Jerusalem in the first group of coming back were the ones whose hearts God had stirred. Ezra's messengers may have been men of standing and Ido might have been a leading man, but God is the one who moves people into action. And Ezra knows this. And so it says 38 Levites come along with 220 temple servants. Now who are the temple servants? They're not Levites. The temple servants were those who functioned according to David's instructions when he was setting up things for the temple that his son Solomon would build, which would have been hundreds of years earlier here. 
And what it was, David said, you know, if people want to be servants in the temple, there's things they can do, and they can come and serve too. So these aren't Levites even, they're temple servants, and they are flat-out servants. But 220 of them come. So Ezra gets a good-sized sample of workers for the temple worship. So it's time to move on, right? Well, kind of. 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. So they had gathered to go, but they had to make a Levite run. So go pick up some Levites before we leave. And that took a little bit of time. So now they're running a little bit behind. And you might think they might be eager to get going to make up some time. But Ezra, again, he's running this bunch. Ezra proclaims a fast. Now, I don't know about you, but we are big proponents of getting some snacks for the road when we go on a trip, huh? Hmm? Set us loose in sheets and we're like marauding band of pirates who haven't eaten in a fortnight. Arr. But Ezra does the exact opposite. He proclaims a fast. Why? Now think about a fast. A fast means they ain't eating, y'all. It's a solemn thing. It's a humbling thing. So before their journey, he says, let's not eat, let's humble ourselves. Why? That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now, why would he do such a thing? Well, there's obvious reasons. They were about to embark on about a 900-mile journey across some rough terrain with men, women, children, animals, and goods. There were sure to be some marauding bands of thieves and bandits, which were and still are common in those desert regions. And here come 7,000 people with all their stuff. And as we'll see in the next section, a lot of valuables for the temple worship. And it was common for kings to send their delegations with armed escorts to protect them. And this was a delegation sent by the king. And so they could have and probably should have had an armed group with them. But Ezra says he was ashamed to ask for armed protection from the king since he had told the king that God was with them and for them. His wording was, I love this, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. I like that wording. So they fasted. 7,000 people fasted. And they implored God for safety. And Ezra says, God listened to their entreaty. And it's good that He did, because check out what they were carrying in verses 24 through 30. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. 
Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Now, Ezra sets apart 12 priests and Levites to keep up with the silver, gold, vessels and offerings that, were, that they were carrying for the temple. Now, we just read that and we don't have a clue what all the amounts mean, so let me bring that into our vernacular. 650 talents of silver equals, are you ready? 24 tons of silver. For those of you that don't know, a ton is 2,000 pounds. 24 times 2,000 is what? 48,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. That's a big wallet. Imagine that hurting your back, you know, when you sit on it. 24 tons, a tractor trailer load, to put it in perspective. The silver vessels worth 200 talents would have been about 7,500 pounds of those vessels, and the 100 talents of gold would also equal about 7,500 pounds. The gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks would have been, a, been worth about 19 pounds of gold. Now, if you got 19 pounds of gold, you got some cash, y'all. And then those two vessels of fine bronze, well, just use your imagination there. I don't know how much they weighed. Two vessels. I got two vessels. Lovely throws that in there. All being said, one estimate says that what they were carrying would be worth over $3 million in today's money, today's time. And they're going across the desert on a horse with no name. No, no, no. Sorry, it just comes out. And there's bound to be marauders and pirates and booty seekers. That's fun to say too. Yeah, so $3 million worth of stuff, 24 tons of silver, plus, 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 plus. And Ezra was like, nah, we don't need an armed guard. God's got our back. Now, I'm sure there were those in the company who may have felt differently. (laughs) Especially these 12 guys whose job it was to watch over all this stuff while they're walking through the desert. Got 12 guys who are like, okay, (laughs) we'll see what we can do here. Now, they, they took it up and they did it. It was left up to them, trusting in God to protect them from outsiders and from those in their own company. There's bound to be people who would want to sneak a little bit of silver, right? Yes. So they took on the job. And they guarded this stuff until they got to Jerusalem. And note how Ezra exhorts and encourages them. This is probably my favorite part of the passage. He tells these 12 guys who are guarding all this stuff, "...you are holy to the Lord." And the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of our Lord. The ultimate destination for this stuff was the temple of the God of Israel. And so he tells them, these offerings are holy, and I love the fact that he says, and you are holy. So this task that you're about to complete over the next four months to guard this stuff is a holy task. That's powerful. Ezra is saying that both they and what they are guarding are holy to the Lord, so guard them and keep them as such. 
So the priests and the Levites appointed did just that. And then finally, verses 31 through 34. That's a pretty quick chapter. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded." At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls from for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. So, we see that they left on the twelfth of the first of the month, of the first month, the twelfth day of the first month, the first month of their calendar to start their trip to Jerusalem. And Ezra says that the hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So we see that there were enemies and ambushes along the way, but God took care of them and kept them safe. They get back to Jerusalem. They take three days, probably to unpack, get settled, rest. And then on the fourth day after they got back, they took the treasures they brought with them and weighed them out to a priest named Merimoth in the temple of God, which is exactly what Ezra said would happen. Everything was there, as was noted back in Ahava, and it was recorded into the records of the temple. And then they offered burnt offerings, worshiping God in the temple, in Jerusalem, according to the law of God that they had observed in a far country for all their lives. But it wasn't just religious duties that they had to perform. They also delivered the king's message to the governmental officials the satraps and governors in the province beyond the river. And after these governmental officials got these orders, they aided the people of Jerusalem and helped in the work that needed done on and for the house of God, the temple. And so now we find our hero and his friends back where they wanted to be, doing what they wanted to do. And life is good, right? Well, wait till next week. For today, we turn to application. Three points of application, and they all end with the same letters, okay? I I just couldn't find, I couldn't do the alliteration. Maybe some of y'all can. First one is fasting. The second is praising. And the third is living. Could have also been working, but I went with living. Fasting, praising, working, living. Let's say living. We're going to stick with living. Fasting, praising, living, okay? First thing that I want to address is fasting. Ezra fasted in order to call attention to the need for God to protect them and bless them. Now, we don't talk about fasting much. But we should be fasting as Christians, as believers, at various times and for various reasons. Now, we don't have time to be real elaborate here. But when you are seriously seeking God and entreating Him for direction or protection... We should deprive our bodies of food and or drink in order to help focus our desires on God and His will. Now, let me reiterate that. You are not earning God's favor. You're not twisting God's arm when you fast. 
What you're doing is trying to say, my sole focus is what I'm praying about and this thing that I'm really seeking direction on or that I'm really seeking protection from. I need to focus on this, so I'm going to go without food. Now, you say, well, that could be even more distracting. And you're right, it can be. Because, anybody ever fasted and told everybody what you was doing? Somebody's like, hey, you want some pizza, man? No, man, I'm fasting. Real hungry. Because I'm not having lunch today. That's all right. But, I mean, should we tell folks what we're doing there? No, Jesus tells us plain. Okay, these are pretty common instructions, but we need to hear them again. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, And when you fast, and notice he says when you fast, not if you choose to fast sometimes, he says when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Now just get that picture. Here's this hypocrite, this self-righteous prig, who's walking around going, What's the matter, man? I'm fasting. Ah. Dude, you're freaking me out is what you're doing. They disfigure their faces. Put my fasting face on. Truly I say to you, they have, their, they have received their reward. But when you fast, again, when? Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you don't go out and tell everybody and show everybody, so hungry because I'm fasting, y'all. Don't offer me them donuts because I'm fasting, y'all. He's just saying don't do that. Wash your face, anoint your head, which means look normal. And don't eat. Maybe you take the time when you would have been eating to pray or to seek the guidance of Scripture or... You're you're focusing, instead of the time that you would have been doing something else, you devote that time to seeking God. That's what fasting is. It's not real complicated. It's hard because we like to eat, right? So we should be fasting. Now, if you really want to know what kind of fast God is looking for when we fast, Isaiah 58 tells us, and I'm just going to read this, and then I'll say one or two small things. 14 verses. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. They're grumpy because they haven't eaten. Seriously, that's what's going on. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. He's saying you're just not eating. That's what you're doing and you're being mean when you're doing it. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Now this is Old Testament, y'all. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, God says, 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, which sounds a lot like what Jason said this morning, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. By the way, when you're not eating is what he's saying. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn, your, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now let me just encapsulate that real quick. The kind of fast that God is looking for is when we give up our food to feed hungry people. When we turn back our foot from doing what we want to do on the Sabbath to bless other people. That's the kind of fast that the Lord is looking for. Not just not eating, but giving up. He even said clothes. Not being ashamed of your own nakedness, taking off your own clothes to give it to somebody who's naked, who needs clothes. Giving them the shirt off your own back. That's the kind of fast that God is looking for. So in my encouragement this morning to tell you to fast, I'm not telling you just don't eat some. I'm saying seek the Lord and help others who could use what you're giving up. I would encourage you to read, think about, pray about, meditate on Isaiah 58 and ask God, how should I fast? But we should fast. Ezra fasted. He wasn't twisting God's arm. He wasn't making God listen to him. He was humbling himself and saying, God, I need you to do this more than I need my necessary food. And I want this to be the sole focus of what I'm doing from here on out for these 7,000 people. So Ezra fasted. That was fasting. We won't talk anymore about it because we're about to eat lunch, right? So fasting, praising. Ezra's real quick to give praise to God. Ezra asked God to bless them and keep them safe, and God did it. And Ezra publicly recognized it. He says in 8.22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king. Now here's what he boasted in front of the king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So before God blesses him, He praises God and says, God's going to bless us. To the point that he was ashamed to even think about going to the king, hey, can you help us out by keeping us safe? Because he's like, I already told him God's going to keep us safe. So if I ask him for an armed guard, do I diminish the praise of God 
and have to praise man for protecting us on our way. Let me, let me, let me throw this out there to you. Protect your praise. What I mean by that is take the truths of Scripture, walk according to them, proclaim them. Now, be careful here before they happen. I'm not saying speak things into existence. I'm not saying proclaim the blessings of God, name it and claim it. God wants me to drive a Bugatti, so I'm going to say Jesus wants to give me a Bugatti or an airplane or a space shuttle. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is protect your praise by saying God's going to do what God said He would do. First, you've got to know what God said He would do. Then you have to proclaim it. And then you have to walk in the truth of that promise. And when God does what God said He would do, you praise God for it. Amen. That takes you out of the picture. That takes the dadgum government out of the picture. That takes your boss and your job out of the picture. And you praise God for what God does. Listen, God gave you your job. God gave you the ability to make wealth. God gave you your children. God gave you your home. God gave you the clothes on your back. And we need to praise Him for that publicly. Protect your praise. Don't talk about what you did to earn what you've got. Because I'm telling you, it seeps into your salvation too. And you start to talk about what you did to get yourself saved. Be very careful. Protect your praise. We see Ezra's public praise again. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth month of the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. He said God would do it. God did it. And then He said God did it. God will do it. God did it. Now let me tell you how God did it. That's praising. He fasted in anticipation of that. He walked in the knowledge of what God said He would do. And then He praised God publicly for what God did. That's a pattern of praise for us. That's exactly how we should operate. It's like Ezra knew what he was doing or something. God did what God said God would do. And Ezra just pointed it out and said, Yeah, God said He would do that and God did it. So should we. Fasting, praising, living. Again, it could be working. I would say living slash working because let me talk about this, okay? <clears throat> Ezra told the priests and the Levites that what they were doing was holy. Here's that verse. I, I read it earlier. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And so they set about the task of guarding these holy treasures and in doing so, here you go, were acting out their holiness. How? By living. By putting one foot in front of the other and doing what was in front of them to do. And that was holy. Did the silver and the gold make the priests and the Levites holy? No. The silver and gold were holy because it was set apart for God. And then Ezra said, You are, priests and Levites, set apart for God to do the work that is in front of you. And that's living. 
That's what they did. And set apart for God means that they were holy. This says a couple of things to me. First, as those who serve God, and that's us, believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, people who have entrusted their salvation to the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are made holy by the call and the presence of God. Listen, we saw last week that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. That was in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. And that means we, as believers, all of us who follow Jesus, are holy. We are set apart for God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9. I don't have this up here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's who you are, church. That's who we are, church, individually and corporately. We are holy. But so is what we do. And everything we do is to be holy. Like Levites who were sweeping the floor or dusting the furniture in the temple, all of our acts are worship and are to be holy unto the Lord. Now that translates into our church life. Everything that went into our worship service today is holy. Every act, every deed, the presentation of the music... Unlocking the door, the food that you prepared for the meal, the food that you eat for the meal, the eating of the food, the vacuuming, the saying hello to someone coming in, the preaching of the Word, the partaking of the bread and the juice, and on and on. When we assemble, these things are holy. It all matters. It's all an offering to God and it is holy pulling yourself out of bed after daylight savings time starts. It's holy. It matters. Husbands, fathers saying, we are going to church today. It's holy. We're going to go worship with the people of God today. That's a holy proclamation. And it all matters. It's all an offering to God and it's all holy. Listen to me. There are no menial tasks when we assemble. There are no menial tasks when we worship corporately, when we assemble in body life. And it's all necessary. Why do we... I kind of get on this horse sometimes and I'm sure some of you are like, really? Give it up, man. We want you to be here. Why? Because what you're doing is holy and it blesses somebody else. A look, a smile, a hug, a handshake, a word. Sitting down across the table back here. Listen, the meal's a big deal. Why? Because it's holy. Our conversation is holy. Our eating food together is holy. It's a big deal. It's biblical. You say, it's just eating food. No, it's not. Neither is your walking through that door. Neither is your sitting and listening. It's not just sitting there listening. It's holy. It's not menial. It's all necessary. 
Psalm 84.10 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I love this. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You get that? David says, I'd rather hold the door in God's house than do anything else anywhere else. Anybody enjoy holding the door? Is that glamorous? Is that the out front ministry team? We've got the door holding team. Assemble. Go hold doors. And David said, if it's in the house of God, I'd rather do that than anything else anywhere else with wicked people. I'd rather hold the door for holy people than go hang out with evil people. It's not menial. It's holy. Oh, for a gathering of Christians whose chief desire is to dwell with God and His people in the blessed work of corporate worship where we gather together in order to worship God together. It's holy. It's biblical. And that's just the corporate side of it. There's also an individual side of it. Just as there are no remedial tasks in the gathering of the church corporate, listen to me, there are no remedial tasks that we do day in, day out, that are not to be holy. Here's a list of three things that are holy. Are you ready? Everything, everything, everything. Everything we do is holy, is to be holy. Anybody ever heard of Brother Lawrence? Hear a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God? Anybody ever read that? A little short, it's PDF, uh, public domain, you can download it. It's not hard to read. He was a monk, but he made it his habit, not like what he wore, he made it his practice to understand that he was in the presence of God all the time. And that whether he was peeling potatoes or cleaning the floor, it was to be an act of worship. Let me read you a quote from him. As he lived, Coram Deo, in the face of God, or in the presence of God. This is what he says. That we need only to recognize God intimately present with us, to address ourselves to Him every moment, that we may beg His assistance for knowing His will in things doubtful and for rightly performing those which we plainly see He requires of us, offering them to Him before we do them and giving thanks to Him when we are done. And that's everything. Everything. These Levites walked beside the caravans where the silver was. Twelve guys with three million dollars worth of stuff. And they were responsible for it. And they did it and it was holy. They were holy. And what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You shall be holy, for I am holy. For your Father in heaven is holy. That we may beg His assistance for knowing His will in things doubtful and for rightly performing those which we plainly see He requires of us. And there you go. Offering them to Him before we do them and giving Him thanks when we have done them. Which is exactly what Ezra did. Which is exactly what we're supposed to do in all that we do. We have to see in our everyday lives that God is with us 
and all that we do should be done to please and to worship Him. And when I say all that we do, I mean all that we do. We sang this morning, you're all to us. What's that mean? In every time, in every situation, God, you're here, you're present, you're with me, you're for me, and I want to make what I'm doing an act of worship. You say, what, everything? Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, whether it's talking or doing, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means if you can't do it in the name of the Lord, don't do it. And after you do it, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus that you got to do it. You say everything, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's everything. There are no unspiritual parts of your life. There are not those things that are not supposed to be holy. Eating, drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then praise God for the ability to do it and Him having helped you through doing it. It's what Ezra did. It's what we should do. Fasting, praising, living. It's all to be holy. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be delivered from the mundane. That we would be delivered from eyes that can't see the wonder of a God who is with us and for us in all that we do. And that we would fast to focus our attention and affection upon you. That we would be publicly praising you for who you are and what you're doing. And God, that we would live in such a way that we show that you are with us, that you are holy, and as such, we are holy. There are no menial tasks. There is no mundane. It's just not there when we live in the face, in the presence of God. So help us, God, to be those who know these things and do these things according to the power of your Holy Spirit. Not to us, not in our own strength, not in our own ability do we trust. We trust in the power of your Spirit to... Make us holy in all that we do. And we trust you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction before we go glorify God through our eating and drinking and discussing. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.